So just recently I read um, about a cowboy out west, actually, who's driving down the dirt road. And he had his dog riding in the back of his pickup truck. And his faithful horse was in the trailer behind. And as they were driving, he failed to negotiate a curve and had a terrible accident. Sometime later, finally, a highway patrol officer arrived on the scene. And as an animal lover, he saw the horse first. And realizing the serious nature of that horse's injuries and feeling a sense of compassion, he drew his service revolver and put the animal out of its misery right there on the spot. As he walked around the accident site, he also encountered the dog also hurt critically. And he couldn't bear to hear it whine in pain, so he mercifully ended the dog's sufferings as well. And finally, he located the cowboy who suffered multiple fractures and groaning and lying on the ground off in the weeds. And he says, hey, are you okay? And the cowboy took one look at the smoking revolver in the trooper's hand and he quickly replied, I've never felt better. <laughs> it's amazing how quickly our attitude and reactions can change as a result of a change in our perception. Well-known TV spokesman and news magazine hosts of years gone by once said, a happy person is not a person in a certain set of circumstances, but rather a person with a certain set of attitudes. Victor Frankl, a concentration camp survivor during the Holocaust, put it this way, quote, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's way, unquote. And I believe it was Chuck Swindoll who once said, the longer I live, the more I realize that the impact of attitude is, has on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes. It's more important than what other people think or say or do. It's more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, and a home. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every single day regarding the attitude we will embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. I am convinced, he said, that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I react to it. And so it is with you and me. We are in charge of our attitudes. And the foremost authority on the subject, the Holy Spirit, says it like this through the words of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18, I'm going to read it out of the message. He says, be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens, this is the way God wants you who belong to Christ Jesus to live. That's our text for today. In no more than a handful of words, the Apostle Paul leaves the people of Thessalonica and us with an armload of theology. 
Again, to repeat the words of Chuck Swindoll, the remarkable thing is we have a choice every single day regarding the attitude that we will embrace for the day. We are in charge of our attitudes. So our attitudes truly will make or break the relationships that we enjoy, whether in a company or whether in a home and certainly in the church. So last week we began to unpack some of the real responsibilities each of us has for maintaining flourishing relationships in the church. In verses 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians 5, we learn that we have a mutual responsibility to care for one another. Let's look at those again. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, See to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That was last time. Today, in three short bursts of truth, Paul cuts to the chase, teaching us that attitude is everything in our response to life. Our responsibility as believers is to cultivate, then, the right kind of attitude. Because, friends, life is a jungle. Circumstances aren't always pleasant, are they? In fact, a lot of the time it seems that we're in the midst of an all-out battle as we wait for Christ to return. Let me just say this. We are. We are in a battle. And it's not always easy to keep a positive attitude in that battle. And when we don't, the fallout usually occurs in our relationships. That's why Paul is so curt with us here in this text. His words don't really need a whole lot of explanation, just immediate application. In the midst of a war, you don't spend a lot of time with superfluous explanations, do you? You don't waste words. You get to the point. And so, let's get to Paul's point. On the spiritual front lines of life in Christ, Paul says, right relationships are oiled by having the right attitude. And as we enter that battle and encounter the various circumstances in our lives, how we are approaching them matters. Paul says we need to be armed and dangerous. That's why I've entitled this section, Armed and Dangerous. Here's how we do that. Summarizing this text, these, two, these few verses, verses 16 through 18, he says, arm yourselves with a joyful heart, align yourselves with a prayerful mind, and adorn yourselves with a thankful spirit. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. And before I get into unpacking those three areas, I want us to read these verses together. And so we all have the same translation. It's going to be on the screen. You ready? Let's read them together. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So the first thing Paul says is arm yourselves with a joyful heart. Verse 16, rejoice always. J.B. Phillips translates verse 16 this way. Be happy in your faith at all times. Now you say, how in the world can I be happy all the time? And you look around the room and there are plenty of people here that probably are feeling like no way can we be happy at all the time. Are we supposed to paste a fake smile on our faces even when we're badly hurting? 
Are we never to be serious or sad? What about the emotions of grief and discouragement and disappointment and frustration? Are we to, supposed to squelch those emotions, bury them, refuse to let them show, pretend they don't exist? Didn't God wire us up as emotional beings created in his image? As I read the Bible, probably you too, I see a God who sometimes expresses anger and grief and sorrow. So what about that? Did Jesus shed tears? He did, didn't he? Shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35. Jesus wept. It's an easy one to memorize. You should memorize it. <laughs> Didn't Jesus agonize in the Garden of Gethsemane? Didn't he grieve over those who refused to come to him like the rich young ruler? Yes, God did wire us up with a host of various emotions. And no, he doesn't expect us to be giddy and laughing and celebrating at every single moment. But as people whose hearts and minds have been transformed by the Spirit of God, we no longer have to allow those emotions to control us or rule us or master us or lead us into sinful behavior. We don't. Deep beneath the exterior emotions ought to lie this settled unshakable attitude of gladness. Authentic joy, not fake joy. A solid core of inner rejoicing that is not determined by, nor is it shaken by, any exterior circumstance. Because deep down in the very center, in the core of our being, lies a seed of faith in God. No matter how small that seed is, Jesus said it can move mountains. Amen? That stabilizes us in the midst of anything that we're going through. That's how Paul could say almost paradoxically that as he worked with Jesus as a servant of the gospel, he could endure incredibly difficult circumstances on the outside and yet remain joyful within. Let me read to you 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. In the NIV, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, here's the kicker in verse 10, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. How could he say that? That's how Jesus could endure the shame and humiliation of the cross for us. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. 
Hebrews 12. And we can maintain our joy by deliberately riveting our attention on him who is not only our example, but he's our enabler as well. Listen to the way the message puts Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 and 3. Bring some color out of it. Keep your eyes on Jesus, who both began and finished this race we're in. Study how he did it. Because he never lost sight of where he was headed. That exhilarating finish in and with God. He could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside of God. So when you find yourselves flagging in your faith, go over that story again, item by item. That long litany of hostility that he plowed through. That will shoot adrenaline into your souls. It's a great translation of that. So Paul says, arm yourselves with a joyful heart first. It's not easy, but it's absolutely necessary if we're going to get through this war. And the world needs to witness that, doesn't it? Really, I mean, there's a serious lack of joy in the world today. And no wonder, because without Christ, there's not much hope to grab onto, is there? But my concern is not so much the lack of joy in the world this morning, but the lack of joy in the church we know there's hope. And we supposedly embrace that hope every single day. But most people wouldn't know it by a lot of Christians' demeanor. As one author has noticed, the doomsday face is fast becoming the identifying mark of the Christian. And that's too bad, tragic in fact. That same writer writes, some Christians have such long faces they could eat corn out of a Coke bottle. <laughs> there are some exceptions, of course, but therein lies the problems. Why are the joyful ones the exceptions? That's a good question. You know, joy is the second aspect of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. If listed in order of importance, joy is in the silver medal position. Love is the gold, peace being the bronze. Sure, life is serious business, and I'm not advocating that we make light of it to the point of being flippant, because there is an extreme that which our joy and our humor can become offensive and inappropriate, isn't there? But I agree with the writer who says that we have a long way to go before we're guilty of that problem. We can be spiritual and still have fun. Listen to the wisdom of God. Proverbs 17, 22. A joyful heart is good medicine. But a broken spirit dries up the bones. Relationships are oiled when we arm ourselves with a joyful heart. A well-developed attitude. Proverbs 17, 22 literally means this in the original language. A joyful heart causes healing. Healing to the soul, if not to the body. The ability to laugh in the face of everyday life is a safety valve, isn't it? It gets rid of stress and tension and anxiety, which are health destroyers and relationship derailers. Did you know that grants have been awarded to hospitals, nursing homes, and agencies to start humor programs for their patients? 
Because there are a number of things that laughter can do for you. It helps you unwind. It strengthens your immune system. It improves your circulation. Humorist Irma Bombeck had a knack for finding joy in life. And she once quipped that God understands even her shallow prayers, like the one in which she implores, Lord, if you can't make me thin, then make my friends look fat. <laughs> she can poke fun at things like that. Theologian Helmut Tielicke once wrote this. He said, should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as are the lines of care and seriousness? Is it only earnestness that is baptized? Is laughter pagan? We've already allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church and cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way, he says, when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the Toastmasters. I mean, even writing from prison, Paul could encourage us, right? He could encourage us to rejoice. This is what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it's a safeguard for you. And then in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, you know this verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is near. Now, Jesus Christ can put joy into the joyless work of today. No, life is not a bowl of cherries. Not everything goes our way, as is obvious. Not even close. There are tough, tough, tough times to go through. But joy is the settled contentment of knowing that God is with us. He's for us. And he wants to put his full joy within us. Amen? Here's some things that we can have joy in, according to the scriptures. We have joy in our salvation. Habakkuk 3.18. We have joy in Jesus' word, John 15.11. We have joy in answered prayer, John 16.24. We have joy in an active faith, Romans 15.13. We have joy in bringing people to Jesus. and come. Margot was talking about that this morning. Greatest joy was to see that girl come to Christ, right? That's 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. We can have joy even in our struggles, says James chapter 1. Paul says, always rejoice. Arm yourselves with a joyful heart within. You'll be able to relate better to the difficult things without. The joy of the Lord is your strength, says Nehemiah. And it's what the kingdom of God is all about. Romans 14, 17 says, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. I read one time something in a, in a, in a magazine. A few months ago, my daughter Marilyn fell down, and her 10-year-old son asked, What was the matter? God isn't listening to me, she replied. I pray and I pray and I pray, but I don't think God hears me. Maybe you're not praying the right way, Mom, O.J. said. Well, I think I know how to pray, Marilyn answered. What do you do that is so different? Well, I just talk to God, O.J. replied. And sometimes I tell God jokes. 
jokes. What kind of jokes, he asked. Give me an example. Well, last night, O.J. replied, I told God the joke about the chicken that crossed the road. Why'd the chicken cross the road? Oh, that one, Marilyn said. God must have heard that one dozens of times. What did God say? God laughed, Mom. God said, O.J., I've heard many, many, many people tell that joke to each other, but you're the first person who ever told me. You want to really make God laugh? Tell him what your plans are. That'll make him laugh. You've heard that one before, but it's true. Paul says, arm yourselves with a joyful heart. Secondly, he says, align yourselves with a prayerful mind. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. Pray unceasingly, Paul says. Be in an attitude of prayer. And again, this goes right back to like the first one. We ask the questions. Is he saying we have to be on our knees 24 hours a day? Of course not. How could we then fulfill all of our other responsibilities as followers of Christ that he lists here? Unceasing prayer is not prayer that continues without interruption, but it's prayer that continues whenever possible. Think about that one for a minute. Prayer is not a ritual, it's a relationship. It's carrying on a continual conversation with God. You've heard that said before. But do you operate that way? Do you think to pray when you're not occupied with something else? Do you pray while you drive or while you work out or while you fly in a plane when you can't sleep at night, when you have five minutes in between your projects? And by the way, it's a two-way conversation, right, prayer is? I love what Lily Tomlin once said. She says, why is it that when we talk to God, we're said to be praying, but when God talks to us, we're called schizophrenic? <laughs> what Paul is suggesting here is to make prayer such a habit of life that it becomes our spiritual default, so to speak. So if you're into computers, you understand the term default or default. It refers to what the system returns to whenever you fail to give it an overriding command. So, do you default to prayer? Is your life programmed that way? Because it's not going to happen on its own. You've got to make it a habit of life. Author Emily Griffin wrote these words. She said, there is a moment between intending to pray and actually praying that is as dark and silent as any moment in our lives. You know that moment? You experience that moment? It's the split second between thinking about prayer and really praying. And for some of us, this split second may last for decades. Unquote. That hurts, doesn't it? That's a ding. You've probably heard it said that Satan laughs at our toiling and he mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. And I think that's precisely why the Bible constantly refers to our responsibility to pray at all times and to pray without ceasing. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. That's the follow-up to putting on the armor of God and standing firm against the evil one in this war that we're in, which is not a physical war, it's a spiritual one. 
Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And then Romans chapter 12 verse 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Jesus distinctly taught his disciples that at all times we ought to pray and not lose heart in Luke 18.1. See, to have this attitude of unceasing prayer is to view prayer as we view breathing. True, continual prayer is like breathing. You've heard that said before too, but I bet you haven't heard this. True, continual prayer is like breathing all right, but sometimes you don't even realize that you're doing it, right? So, but you sure know when you're not doing it, Right? This is what you probably haven't heard. That actually the word unceasingly in this text was used in Greek to describe an irrepressible cough. You know those kind of coughs where if you take a breath you just can't help but <coughs> and then you go on a coughing fit? Happens involuntarily. That's what the word refers to. You have to work to stop that cough from happening, right? Is prayer so much a recurring activity in your life and in mind that we would have to work to stop ourselves from doing it? That's the question. Henry Nouwen points out that prayer has meaning only if it is necessary and indispensable. Prayer is prayer only when we say that without it, we could not live. Prayer ought to be the first thing we do when we wake up in the morning and the last thing we remember before we drift off to sleep at night. And spiritually, you should breathe in its cleansing atmosphere all day long. That's what Paul means by praying unceasingly. Why? Because there are too many spiritual contaminants in the course of normal everyday life that can take us out and take us down. I love the prayer I ran across a while ago. I think I shared it once before that says this. So far today, God, I think I've done all right. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't gossiped. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm really glad about that. But in a few minutes, Lord, I'm going to get out of bed. <laughs> and from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help from you. Thank you for being there. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> that really describes the truth of the matter, doesn't it? So what should the basic thrust of our prayer be? Well... John Ortberg says it like this. Sometimes people pray a version of the Star Trek prayer to Scotty. Beam me up. Right? Many people think our job is to get my afterlife destination taken care of, then tread water until we get, all get ejected and God comes back and torches this place. I love his words here. But here's the thing. Jesus never told anybody, neither his disciples or us to pray words like, get me out of here so I can go up there. He never taught us to pray that way. You know what his prayer was that he taught us? Make up there, come down here. Make things down here run the way they run up there. 
In his most famous prayer, Jesus said, we are to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus told us to pray, bring heaven down here. We begin with our body, our minds, and our appetites. Then it spreads to the office and our family and our neighborhoods, our church and our country. God doesn't reveal himself to us just to make us happy, just to deliver us from loneliness. He also comes to us so that we, in turn, can be conduits of his presence to other people. And, And... And he invites us to join him in making things down here the way they are up there. Imperfectly, but still, that's the motive. This is maybe the most dangerous, exciting, life-altering prayer a human can pray. God, make up there, come down here. You pray that? Every time you pray it, your life, he says, becomes a Beth-El. A temple, a place where God dwells and life breaks through the hedge. Start by asking yourself this question. Where do I want to see God's presence and God's power break into my world? Where would I especially like God to use me to make things down here be like they are up there? I was speaking with a friend the other day on the phone. I shared some difficult things that were going on in the lives of my family members. And immediately he said, stop, let's pray. Right now. What a great ministry that was to me in that moment. It was. It was like bringing heaven down here. He was asking the father to make things run down here the way God wants them up there. Throughout the course of any given day, the Spirit of God may prompt you, may prompt me, us, numerous times to intercede and pray with other people. There may be times when we have no idea how or even what to pray for. It's then that we must trust the fact that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. But if we are not constantly seeking to align ourselves with a prayerful mind, we will miss those opportunities to be part of God's work as he brings up there down here. Amen? Amen. Listen, Psalm 141, verses 1 and 2, prayer is described as incense. It says here, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me, Give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you. Okay? Tell me, what happens when you burn incense in your house? Goes up. What else? Permeates everything. The smell of that gets all over you, doesn't it? Gets all over your clothes. Well, if you were to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, you would find in that text that Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, was in the temple and he went in to do his his priestly offering by burning incense. That's what he was doing when the angel made an announcement to him about the birth of John the Baptist. After him emerging from his priestly duty... 
What must he have smelled like? I mean, he couldn't talk. But everybody knew he was in prayer. Everybody knew that he was offering incense because it was all over his person. Now, let me ask you something as an application. Do you smell like the incense of prayer to others around you? Do I? In other words, do people recognize the fact that you've been with Jesus when they interact with you? Is the result of fulfilling our responsibility to pray unceasingly recognizable to other people? What an amazing opportunity and privilege we are afforded when we are aligned with God through a prayerful attitude. Amen? So Paul says, arm yourselves with a joyful heart. Align yourselves with a prayerful mind. And then finally, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 18, adorn yourselves with a thankful spirit. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In everything give thanks. Now don't misread the text. Paul doesn't say necessarily for everything give thanks. He says in everything give thanks. We are to remain thankful in our attitude. Why? Text tells us why. Why? What does it say? Preach God's will. It is God's will for us to do that. It's his desire. It's his purpose. It's his design. It's his sovereign pleasure that we are thankful people. Thankfulness is the fruit of a joyful heart and a prayerful mind. It's the sign of maturity in Christ's. Consistently in Paul's letters, we read things like, I thank my God in all of my remembrance of you. I thank God always concerning you. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all. For this reason, I too do not cease giving thanks for you. You can read it in all of his letters. He just consistently says it. Paul was genuinely thankful and he prompts us to be as well. Colossians chapter 3. Verses 15 to 17 says this, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And in whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him, to God the Father. Notice the repetitious attitude there? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. So regardless of what's happening in your life, right now, we need to know that the peace of Christ can rule in our hearts. We need to know that the word of Christ can rest in our souls. And the name of Christ can reign over our circumstances. And that is the reason to do, as 1 Chronicles 16.34 invites us to do, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Amen? Did you just sing he's a good, good father? Did you mean it? Did you know that thanklessness is a characteristic trait of the ungodly? Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. 
2 Timothy 3 verses 1 and 2 says, But realize this, in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, and unholy. Thanklessness is right there in the midst of all of those other nasty things. Hebrews 13, 15 says, Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of lips that gives thanks to his name. Or confess his name. Friends, let's not ever take this command lightly in Hebrews 13, 15, you know. Listen carefully. If you can't thank, if we can't thank God with the fruit of our lips, something is wrong in the depths of our hearts as Christians. Because there's always something to thank God for. So ask God to heal that if you're not doing it. And put a song of thanksgiving there. Psalm 51, 15 says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare thy praise. Sometimes, offering yourself as a vessel for the presence and work of God is costly. Richard Felix has written one of the most moving books I've ever read. It's called The School of Dying Graces. He writes of his wife's long terminal struggle with breast cancer, and she endured all the tortures that might promise healing. A lumpectomy, three rounds of chemotherapy, double mastectomy, radiation of the lungs and brain, bone marrow transplant, miracle drugs, and experimental therapies. After almost two years of this agony, her oncologist told her that the beast, which is what Vivian called her cancer, would win. She could expect to live four or five or six more weeks. Vivian and Richard went to their favorite Ocean View restaurant, which had been the setting for so much of their life together and now would be the setting for the beginning of the end. She told him she needed to prepare to die. And she asked if he would take the responsibility for praying for a miracle so that she could turn her focus away from the disease and onto the presence of God. I plan to enroll, she told him, in the school of dying graces. Richard writes of how difficult it was to see her enter her personal Gethsemane, a place of great suffering that became holy ground for her most intimate encounters with God. He said, I could not follow her there, though I longed to do so with every cell in my body. Yet in a way, in choosing to take her suffering on himself, he did enter his own Gethsemane. He entered into the highest kind of love, the love that Jesus suffered the love that embraces suffering for the sake of the beloved. And one June day in the year 2000, Vivian Felix's battle with cancer ended. God, make up there. Come down here. This was essentially Richard's prayer. It did not get answered the way he wanted. 
The full healing of heaven did not descend upon Vivian's body. But in their love for each other, in their prayerfully embraced suffering for each other, there was an expression of love that no cancer could ever defeat. And in the love he gave them, God made down here a little more like up there. God, make up there, come down here. It's not always easy to definitively determine God's will in every circumstance. But when the Bible states in no uncertain terms that something is God's will, we had better take it to heart. The truth stated here in verse 18 is crystal. It's crystal clear that maintaining a joyful heart and a prayerful mind and a thankful spirit is God's will for every single one of us who are in Christ Jesus. That is how God will make up there come down here. That is how God's kingdom breaks into the world. Every time, one writer said, that you are in conflict with someone, want to hurt them, gossip about them, or avoid them, but instead go to them and seek reconciliation and forgiveness, the kingdom is breaking into this world. Every time you have a chunk of money and decide to give sacrificially to somebody who is hungry or homeless or poor, the kingdom of God breaks into this world. Anytime someone has an addiction and wants to partner with God so much that they're willing to stop hiding, acknowledge the truth, and get help from a loving community, up there comes down here. Every time a workaholic parent decides to stop idolizing their job, rearranges their life to begin to love and care for their little children entrusted to them, the kingdom breaks through to down here. Every time you love, every time you include someone who's lonely, every time you encourage someone who's defeated, every time you challenge somebody who's wandering off the path, every time you serve the under-resourced, it is a sign that the kingdom is once more breaking into our world. Someone once said that a place of worship should be of such character that it will be easy for men to find God and difficult for them to forget him. Your life should be such a place, and so should mine. Because that is the attitude that will draw people to Jesus. So friends, there is ample reason to be joyful, because Jesus has paid the price for us. There's also a compelling reason to be prayerful because we're all still sinners in need of his grace. And there is an undeniable reason to be thankful because no one ever has to fear the wages of sin, which is death if you're in Christ because the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and it's available to anyone and everyone who wants to receive it simply by putting your faith in Christ who was crucified, died, and rose again on our behalf. That's how up there comes down here. Let's pray. Father in heaven, your truth gives us hope. It gives us living hope because Christ Jesus didn't stay in the grave. He rose again on our behalf. 
And the Bible says so clearly that when we place our faith in him and trust him, receive him as Lord and Savior, that he forgives us, cleanses us of all sin, and sets us on the path of righteousness. Oh Lord, we're so thankful and joyful. And we pray for all those, Lord God, that have never made that decision and pray that they do so before you return. Give us that living hope today, Lord God, as we leave this place. May we walk in it in Jesus' name. Amen.